0: Make sure you check out our online store where we work with our graphic designer to create stunning garment and product designs that feature a wide variety of aircraft types, such as British fighters, World War II aircraft, American bombers, Russian fighters, and much more. You can pick your favourite designs and personalise any items within our Redbubble store that range from clothing right the way through to stationery. All of our designs feature our logo, so you can show your support for the channel while getting a quality product. You can head to our website, aircrewinterview.tv and click store or go to redbubble.com forward slash people forward slash AC interview. Thank you and enjoy. Yeah, we're going to get on to uh, what all our viewers are being really fascinated about is the MiG-25. Uh, obviously, you mentioned that's the first one you went on to. But, uh, yeah, so, like, talk us through how you got selected uh, to fly the MiG-25. And it was it the MiG-25R, if I'm correct?
1: That's right. We only had the MiG-25R. Indian Air Force only contracted for the MiG-25R. And what we got were six uh, single-seaters, the R, and uh, two... Uh, two-seat trainers. And uh, you would have seen the trainer, is the most unusual trainer, you know. Yeah, it's cockpit, very odd,
0: it looks weird, doesn't it?
1: <laughs> an elevated cockpit. But uh, uh, what uh, you would understand as an aviator is, uh, you know, the, the, the thinking of the logic behind that was fantastic. To me, uh, the MiG-25 trainer, was probably designed after the fighter was, because uh, on this uh, two-seater trainer, the student is sitting in the back, unlike most training aircraft, where the instructor sits at the back in a, in a tandem. Um, here, the student sits at the back. And when you look from the real cockpit, because it's stepped up, uh, there is, you cannot make out the front cockpit, it's part of the nose. Oh, really? Yes. So, to me, what the Russians actually did was take a fighter, remove the camera. The camera was huge, as you know. Uh camera was as big as a, a small sofa set, I would say, a two-seater sofa set. <laughs> uh, so, they removed the camera and put a cockpit. And uh, the canopy... It sort of merges with, with with the design of the nose uh, as seen from the rear cockpit. So the student is sitting there. So you do your training, those three sorties or four sorties of you know two seater trainer training sorties with the instructor, and when you go solo, there is no change, there's no difference. Mm. So it's it's I thought it was absolutely. Uh, Fantastic, Uh, just the thought behind it, that when you transition uh, someone from, a, you send someone solo on a a new aircraft, he's not getting into something unfamiliar, he's absolutely in exactly the same place where he's always been.
0: Yeah, it's very logical, isn't it? Yeah, logical thinking there. Yes. Um, But let's talk about, what was the role of the MiG-25 with the Indian Air Force uh, at your time when you joined, uh, or you were flying it, sorry?
1: Well, the R is the recce version, and uh, you will also understand that because of the heights and the speeds that the aircraft flew at, which was, which was what it was optimized for, uh, it had to be strategic reconnaissance and not tactical reconnaissance. Mm-hmm. So, uh, the R version is basically a strategic reconnaissance airplane, which will give you data and information on static infrastructure and systems that are there in enemy territory.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But if there's a moving object or tactical stuff uh, that goes on moving radars and stuff like that, uh, you will not be able to get those because uh, you fly one mission, you'll probably get it. And the next mission is not there. Mm. So. Uh, So, one has to understand that these were strategic uh, reconnaissance aeroplanes, and not for tactical use. The Indian Air Force used it uh, in its tactical uh, uh, role actually only once, and that's in the
0: 1999
1: um, Indo-Kargil War. The War, uh, the Kargil War, Indo-Pakistan-Kargil yes. War, 1999, where we used it in, in the tactical sense at lower level. Uh, you didn't use it at low le- Firstly, uh, everything was uh, analogous. So we had uh, these cameras, which you know, had these huge film rolls and uh, which you had to develop and, you know, <coughs> the routine stuff. And uh, sort of a long process, and uh, so the uh, usage was uh, limited to high altitude, high speed, because of the apertures uh, and the fixed apertures and stuff like that, and the speed at which the airplane went. You had to have uh, what they called the a V by H ratio to maintain to get a swath and. And the correct overlap of the of the of the, the frames, hmm. you know, it w- it would be you know it's clicking frame by frame.
0: Ah, oh, right, got you. Yes,
1: right. So frame by frame, and if you didn't have the correct v by h ratio, uh, that is the velocity by height, uh, you got gaps in the in the frames and the film, hmm. or you got excessive overlap where you couldn't read uh, hmm. the picture. Now the V by H ratio automatically gets controlled by the computer and uh, as long as you're flying at within those heights and speeds. (laughs) (laughs) Excuse me. So if you tell me that, okay, I want a tactical picture and you get down to uh, say two um, kilometers or three kilometers, say 8,000, 6,000, 10,000 feet. And get me a film uh, because you've got great cameras. I can't because I'll have to fly at a speed which is unrealistic, right. and I don't get the V by H uh, ratio to give me a uh, give me a correct picture. So the lowest that I could get a tactical picture was at uh, 6.5 kilometers, uh, flying subsonic. 6.5 is uh, 20,000 feet and more 21 22,000 feet uh is is the lowest uh i could come to do a tactical sort of a picture for anyone wow so we would fly only above uh 65 70,000 feet to get the strategic uh, picture and uh, i would give a swath uh of film uh, for the range that I fly, or the distance that is required, uh, with a with a lateral uh, coverage of uh, 90 to 93 kilometers. Say ninety. Wow. Say ninety. And running, if I'm running six hundred kilometers this way, so I've got a swath that I can give you of a clear picture of uh, six hundred by ninety.
0: Wow. I mean I mean what an impressive aircraft I mean even looking at it it's in like for me every time I see it it's a, a very intimidating aircraft but when you put it in the recce role it's a, it's completely different
1: yes uh, it, uh, the recce version came out much later as i understand uh, they had the fighter first and i think the the MiG 25A was the original fighter which they probably designed to hit uh, The U-2s and the SR-71s, that was the purpose behind the whole thing. But what we have gathered uh, sometimes is that they had a look down, shoot down capability too on the MiG-25A.
0: Yes, yes.
1: At a later date, Mm -hmm. where they claimed uh, they could shoot down cruise missiles. So I don't know, I'm not too sure, but uh, that's what we've heard. What was it?
0: like going through your ground training going from obviously the mig-21 to a recce platform and obviously the flying clothing and was that comfortable because it looks a bit uncomfortable
1: but how did you feel about this uh at the outset uh, you know we had the mig-25 25 for 25 years
2: mm.
1: from 1981 through 2006. So we had the aircraft for 25 years, and uh, let me tell you, Mike, 90% of the Indian Air Force never ever saw the airplane. Right. Yeah. So it was it was kept as a as a super secret weapon. I wow. would say uh, it was kept away from prying eyes. Nobody was allowed to visit the unit. Nobody was allowed to come close. Uh, on the base, uh, we had uh, another squadron, of, uh, another squadron of aircraft, but ours was special. We had a double layer uh, fencing around the unit. We had we had these guard dogs, uh, German shepherds and and uh, uh, and uh, Doberman pinchers and stuff like that. Guard dogs and uh, Policing, policing the place, and uh, we uh, we you know our our programs of flying was not uh, routinely passed on to uh, you know to everybody you know because you know things get accessible to people as to who's flying when and how and all that. Yes, so uh, it would be limited. So, only the ATC knew, and uh, so they would regulate. And because you know, these missions, uh, when you fly, apart from your training, of course, uh, and even when we trained, we trained like that mm. to say that uh, the missions will be silent. Wow. Uh, you didn't, you, you could ask for a takeoff, but normally you didn't. The only article call you you ever gave was uh, three greens for a landing. So you had a time you had a time given to the ATC for takeoff, and you just started up and you went onto the runway. And uh, he kept the aircraft airfield clear of traffic. At that time, he knew that the, the one person who would know that what well, this is the time scheduled for takeoff. You would go for your mission. Uh, that's it. Uh, You've gone, and uh, the the ground radars, the surveillance radars, uh, they would call you uh, in case there was a threat. Right. Otherwise, you you flew the mission all silent, absolutely quiet, not a word, till you came back for landing. Wow yeah wow that's a incredible little, a, a, a bit lonely but then the missions were not too long
0: Yeah, so like maybe how long was an average mission you probably can't tell us too many details but were they like an, average. an hour about, about an hour about an hour about an hour right is that because it was so little fuel on board because then then burners look huge like when you i'm guessing did you take off and reheat as well or afterburner every time yes
1: uh it had very little fuel,
0: mm-hmm.
1: only 20 tons. <laughs> only. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it, uh, the airplane, uh, it was strange. It was a 20 tonne aeroplane with 20 tons of fuel, mm-hmm. so 40 tons uh, on takeoff. Uh, the belly tank, which uh, it could carry a belly tank, mm-hmm. which had a limitation of 1.5 mark. So, if you were transiting beyond 1.5 mark, you had to drop the tank. Hmm. The, the tank was one MiG-23 under the belly. Okay. One full MiG-23 under the belly. Wow. It had, it, had, it had as much fuel as a full internal fuel of a MiG-23. Internal, yeah. Crikey.
0: Crikey.
1: So, that was the size of the tank. It was huge. And uh, so on a mission, you wouldn't use it because you wouldn't like to drop that tank on somebody uh, somewhere. And uh, I don't think that that would be very comfortable. So uh, you flew uh, the tank only for training uh, sorties and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So that you knew the carriage and, you know, she sort of uh, waddles uh, with the tank full, you know, when when you're 40 tons. Uh, it, oh, it carries fuel in the fins. Yes, 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 it does, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. 600 kgs in the fins. <laughs>
0: it's so, basically, a, uh, it's uh, basically a plate. It's just a rocket with
1: fuel on, isn't it? That's all it is. Yeah, so you're, you're, you're sitting on a fuel tank, literally, yes. you know, when you're flying. And that's, uh, maybe I'll, I'll tell you about it. That's the only fear that I felt, and I'm sure a lot of people feel, uh about uh, you know when people you know people say that okay fighter pilot you're fearless sure we're fearless but there's always that little element no there's something that in there <laughs> everybody you know i think suffers from and they i if they deny it they, there's something wrong <laughs> uh and i would say that uh, my fear was uh, of flying on the mig 25 was uh we didn't fly in the troposphere like all the other airplanes do we flew in the stratosphere mm. where the sky was no more blue and uh, so you're flying at seventy thousand feet, say twenty kilometers or twenty two kilometers of height. And uh, you're flying on a sitting on a fuel tank, and if your fire warning light comes on, Mike, uh, I think you know uh, we are all very clear that, if you you got that much of gas on you and you got your fire warning on, uh, there's not much you can do if the f- extinguisher hasn't worked and it doesn't go off, you got to get out.
0: Yes, of course.
1: Uh, the ejection, the ejection seat on the MiG-25 it was the same as the the MiG-21, the 23, the 25, uh, and, right. and and the 27. So they had two settings. One was at three kilometers, that is 10,000 feet. And one was at six kilometers, which was twenty thousand feet. So we set it at twenty uh, six kilometers, especially because of the hills that we have in India and the, you know, the Himalayan range and all that. So you set it at uh, six kilometers for the seat uh, separation, uh, for the uh, seat separation and the parachute opening, right? Mm. You have a seat setting, altitude setting. Uh, activated by barometric pressure. Uh, the fear was of the unknown, is that if I have to hop out of an aeroplane because of fire, or, say at uh, 20 kilometers of height, and uh, my my parachute is not going to open till I hit six kilometers of height. Oh my God, yeah. So I'm going to have a free fall from of 14 kilometers of free fall, uh, where the ambient temperature there is minus 85 to minus 90 degrees Celsius, uh, our skin temperature, incidentally, at those speeds, were plus 300 degrees Celsius. Mm. So you're flying an aeroplane with the outside skin temperature of uh, of plus 300 degrees Celsius through ambient temperature of minus 90. If, you have, if I have to hop out, I have to hop out in a in a environment of minus 90 degrees, with the pressure so low, and then I have a free fall of 14 kilometers. Uh, well, I you know it's not a very comfortable thought. To um, to get back to a question that you'd asked earlier, afterburner, uh, we always used afterburner for takeoff uh we use afterburner for takeoff on all the airplanes all the mig uh, variants in india other than the mig twenty nine yes so uh mig twenty nine also we've we've used with the afterburner not a problem because with the afterburner on a mig twenty nine you can do a takeoff on uh, you could do in a loop on takeoff you know
2: mm-hmm.
1: that's the power anyhow so you' take off on a uh, on the mig twenty five with the afterburner and you don't don't come off the afterburner till you come in for a landing. The entire mission is flown with afterburner from the time you take off. Wow. You climb out, and to give you uh, uh, a sort of a uh, uh, an idea of the sheer power of the aeroplane, if I had to take off and. If I had to do a reciprocal turn, if I'm going to a mission somewhere that side, uh, by the time I turn around and uh, and I come back in line with the point where I took off from the landing dumbbell,
2: mm-hmm.
1: I'm crossing uh, ten kilometers of height and a speed of 1.1 mark. Oh. That's 30,000 feet and 1.1 mark. By the time I've raised yeah. my wheels, perhaps accelerated a little bit commenced the turn and reached here. I'm crossing 30,000 feet, 10 kilometers, 1.1, and accelerating. Uh, At around 18 kilometers or so, we would come back from the max afterburner to min afterburner, minimum. Because if you didn't come back, she was crossing 20 kilometers if you kept it on. Again, as a relationship uh, example, a MiG-21 best rate of climb at sea level was 110 to 130 meters per second
2: mm-hmm.
1: for a MiG-21. The MiG-25 in a an atmosphere of 20 kilometers of height, 70,000 feet, was crossing 20 kilometers at 100 meters per second. Mm-hmm. Same as the mm. MiG 21 at sea level, mm. she's crossing 20 kilometers at 100 meters per second. Wow. That was brute, brute force.
0: Oh, brute force, yeah.
1: Brute power. So you came back to minimum uh, after burner, and uh, there was an onboard computer which sort of found the optimized altitude for you for the fuel that had been consumed, against the fuel that was consumed. So she leveled out on her own, I would say, or, and you got the indications, around 19.7, 19.8, 20.1, somewhere there, around mm-hmm. 20 kilometres. And then she would, you now you kept minimum after burner for the rest of the mission right and as the fuel got consumed she would fly uh when you do your aerodynamics you learn that little m equal to one gives you the maximum range Uh, she would fly to maintain little m equal to one to give you and she would cruise climb sort of all the way so you would typically start mission around 20 and wind up at about 21.8 22 kilometers of altitude and the 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 cruise climb would be so gradual that it never affected the cameras the rate of climb was so was so gentle that it didn't affect your photography and that was it so you came up at about 22 kilometers by the time you decide to come get back and now when you get back you come back and you you Switch off the burners and then you come to idle and you glide back home 350 kilometers of distance. (laughs) Really? Throttles back to idle, yes. Wow. So you're gliding, you're gliding throttles back at idle 350 kilometers to touchdown.
0: Wow, that I never knew that. That is really impressive for a big bird like that. Mhm. <laughs> but uh, as I just mentioned there, Sumit, uh, can you tell us a bit about the yeah the flight gear? Because uh, did you feel comfortable in it and was it safe? Do you think oh, for comf- that environment? The,
1: com- the comfort of the of the suit. Yeah. Uh, the pressure suit. Oh. Uh, when you look at it, uh, Mike. Uh, is actually the same suit that Yuri Gagarin wore, the first man in space. Oh, wow. Yeah, almost the same. Probably he had a few more alterations to it uh, because of space flight. Uh, but essentially, it's the, it's the same suit. The MiG 21s had it, the MiG 23s had it because they were designed for interception at. At 18, 19, 20 kilometers. So, as a pilot officer, I have flown that with the same pressure suit also, you know, uh, so many years before that. Yeah. Uh, but that, that was very little. You just flew a couple of uh, sorties to you know, sort of, you know, understand what it's all about. Here, you are flying it all the time. And uh, so, it's it's a skin tight suit, and it's a skin tight suit which you cannot put on, uh, wear, or take off uh, on your own. It has you have to be helped into and out of mm. by somebody else. Right. So, you had your normal underwear and your waist, and then on top of that, you wore silk inners, long johns. Uh, full-leggings and full-sleeve, uh, round-necked, uh, the same, silk inners, on which you slid the suit up. She would slide only on the silk. She wouldn't slide on the skin. All right. right. Okay. Yeah. And having put it on, you zip up and, uh, oh, please get to the loo before you get into that suit. <laughs> <laughs> Because you you, you you couldn't go to, you couldn't go to the yeah to the blue uh, once you got a super no sir. No sir, you couldn't. So now you you zip it up and then you have these technicians who'll come and they'll pull these laces, you have laces on your arms, you have laces on your chest, laces on your thighs, laces on your back, and laces down right down right down to your calves to Tighten the suit till it's un- till the point of discomfort, I would say. Right. Where you can just breathe adequately. Because you would understand that if I have to go through a decompression at that altitude, and what it does, uh, you, you don't want your blood to boil out all over. Of course, yeah, yeah. You need to have the thing, you know, your body compressed. So the pressure suit had to be that tight and you had pressure gloves. Uh, We didn't have pressure socks, unfortunately. And uh, then you had this helmet. The helmet was in two parts. You had a a neck ring, and the neck ring had a bladder, which was like a condom. You know, you you wear it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, then you put this helmet with about two and a half kilos, kilograms, that's a very funny. heavy helmet. You put that on your head and then it locks onto the neck ring. Mm. Helmet locks onto the neck ring. And you have a faceplate which is open for you to keep up for normal listening until you reach your takeoff point. At takeoff, you close that. Right. And lock it. Right. So. And then, once you wore the suit with all the threads and the laces hanging all over, although they tucked it in, you had to wear a lightweight flight suit on top <laughs> to, to prevent prevent uh, the threads catching any of the switches and levers and stuff like that in the cockpit.
0: Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: So, effectively, you were wearing your underwear, you were wearing your silky nose, you were wearing the pressure suit. And you are wearing uh, a lightweight flying overall uh, on top of it all. So, four layers of clothing, and you have an out uh, temperature in India of 35, 38 degrees, 40 degrees sometimes Celsius. You walk to the airplane from the crew room and uh, say a, a 10 minute walk. Uh, and you you get in the cockpit. Uh, The inertial platform used to take about 45 minutes to erect. Wow. Uh, It was first generation inertial platform. But uh, what they did was that they started the uh, APU and they started the uh, uh, inertial platform erection through external battery sources. Uh, 45 minutes before you went to the cockpit, so when you got in the cockpit, it was ready. So you had minimum time. But the walk to the aeroplane, 10 minutes, strap up and get in, close the canopy. To reach the runway, another 10-15 minutes, say 20-25 minutes with that suit and the heat, and Russian aeroplanes do not have air conditioning below 6,000 say, feet. Yeah. I think others have told you about this. Yes, yeah, I've heard that before, yeah. Oh my God. So, till you, when you, by the time you reach the takeoff point, you're already dripping sweat. And uh, you take off, once you hit 2 kilometers or 6,000 feet, your air conditioning kicks in. And then it's wonderful like any other aeroplane. Uh, when you come back to land from at six thousand feet it's cut off again. So with some rest with some residual cooling, you come in for landing, but then you have another twenty minutes to to get back from, uh, yeah. to where you are. So by the time you get back, you're wet, you're soaked in perspiration and there's no way you can get out of the suit. So, the other thing was that if I have to eject into a, in enemy territory, I have to make the great escape. And how do I make the great escape wearing a suit like that? So we might be actually trained to take that suit off on our own without any help from right. you know right. the, the technicians who put us into the suit. Sumit, can
0: you tell us some of the strengths and weaknesses of the MiG-25?
1: To start with the strengths, uh, the strength was uh, its height and speed and uh, the quality of the cameras for uh, the era that it, uh, it was uh, designed in. So, frankly speaking, the aircraft got phased out. or uh, it, it lived its life Because the satellite technology took over
2: Mm.
1: and they were able to give you better pictures and submetric um, resolutions of a very high quality. But in its time, uh, the cameras were very good on the MiG-25. And of course, it added height and speed for the job that was at hand, which was uh, deep into enemy territory to get in fast and high. Uh, take the uh, photographs of strategic targets and exit safely. So, uh, in this entire capsule, uh, I think it was uh, very well uh, designed and uh, it met its role uh, very, very effectively. The weaknesses were obviously uh, the gas or the fuel that it uh, contained, a huge amount, uh, 20 tons and uh, that's with with the tank on and uh, so if you had uh, 20 tons of gas it seems a fair amount but when you're when you're flying the entire mission with the afterburner you can understand that uh, the gas does get consumed rather fast so you actually had an endurance of uh, just about an hour and uh, Or shade um, over an hour, and uh, so when you're flying at, of course, 2,000, 2,500 kilometers per hour, you're covering the distance in that one hour. So, as far as distance is concerned, as far as the photograph, uh, photography swath is concerned, you do meet the requirements. But sometimes you feel that if I had a little more gas, maybe I could have done a little more. So
0: could you actually talk us through an average day as a MiG-25 pilot with the Indian Air Force?
1: Before that, uh, let me uh, give you a, uh, an anecdote, or I would say uh, uh, just, just a little story to, to keep the smile on everybody's face or <laughs> was willing to listen to this uh, commentary. Uh, It's it's regarding uh, the cooling systems on the uh, on the aircraft. You will understand that when you're flying at those speeds and those heights, as I told you, uh, although the ambient temperatures are very low, the skin temperatures are very high, and they go up to plus 300 degrees Celsius. And uh, so, if the skin temperatures were high, if the aircraft was being heated up to that extent, you would understand that the avionics and the other electronic systems on board uh, would get overheated so there's always a cooling system in every airplane it's there in every airplane and in uh, all airplanes uh, as you would uh, know the cooling systems are all by alcohol now because of uh, the uh, very high temperatures in this case on on these aircraft uh, the alcohol required to cool the systems on uh, board uh, was uh, a fair amount that was required. So whereas uh, say on a MiG-21 or a MiG-23, you had a little bottle uh, which had alcohol of one to two liters or something, Uh, the MiG-25 carried an alcohol tank of 200 liters. (laughs) Now to refuel 200 liters, uh, or to fill in 200 liters of alcohol into an airplane, uh, you can't do it with little with little cans, so because of the evaporation and stuff like that. so they had these uh, bowsers like a fuel tanker. do you call them bowsers? we call them bowsers in India
2: right the, okay. fuel tank,
1: the fuel tank. So there were many many bowsers or fuel tankers sort of thing, which were actually alcohol tankers and uh, so you you took that alcohol tanker there and you filled in 200 liters of uh, alcohol into the tank and and typical of Russian design at the end of the of the tank at the at the at the bottom um, uh, right corner there was this little tap and so this was for the technicians to you know uh, Cater for the evaporation, are you, are you would say. <laughs> oh, those Russians! You know they're so good at this sort of stuff. So, uh, so that that's the, the funny part about the alcohol the, the alcohol, large alcohol content and and uh, you know the the facility of just taking a bottle home now and then. It was ninety eight proof alcohol. It's not it's not too healthy, but no. <laughs> but in the winters in uh, Russia, you do drink it. Yes yeah they called it uh, techn- they called it technis spirit okay right uh-huh. <laughs> so a typical day i would say if i if i was uh, flying a mission um, uh, uh, the um, the planning that goes into a mission those days everything was analog so you sat with these um, huge maps and we worked uh, normally on a million map minus to one million so we would do the planning, the the tactical, um, the, the routing, and wherever we needed to go, the area to be photographed, and uh, we needed to figure out the exact uh, coordinates of that particular thing, of the targets that we needed to photograph. And uh, the optimized route, which uh, would cater for the quantity of fuel that you had, and uh, all that would be worked out on a map, on a table. So you normally got to work on it. Uh, It it took you a couple of hours. Took you a couple of hours. So you had these large scales and the pencils and stuff like that and you you worked it out. Uh, So you you needed to have a time, a lead time to work out this. Once you worked out the the waypoints. I would say, or the coordinates of every every uh, target, and uh, your turning points. In case there was a turn involved, and where is the turn involved? Uh, where do you uh, start the photography? Where do you end the photography? When do you restart photography? And when do you re end photography? That means you could do it in bits and pieces too, to optimize the consumption of the film roll, mm-hmm. and. Uh, and then after when you exit uh, uh, the other country and uh, typically because of the limitations of the range, as I told you, we didn't have air to a refueling facility. We didn't operate from our home base. Hmm. We operated from forward bases. Hmm. Now, you will also understand that uh, because. Um, uh, did I tell you that we use special fuel mm-hmm. uh, so we used special fuel which was uh, what uh, was called uh, which was a high specific gravity uh, against the normal um, uh, ATF uh, which has a specific gravity of 0.77 uh, we had uh, fuel which was uh, had a specific gravity of 0.84 mm.
2: the
1: high specific gravities uh what it does is it raises the flash point of the fuel because of, t- of the high temperatures uh, and and the wings uh, and the, and uh, all the fuel tanks being within the close proximity of the surface. Uh, the higher specific gravity raises the flash point of the fuel. Hmm. So if you are using special fuel. Uh, if you're going to operate from another base, you have to have that much—20 tons of for each mission—of gas available to you at, an, at a forward base, and you cannot mix up the tanks. You cannot uh, fill up this type of fuel into another uh, tank which is uh, containing something else. So uh, our forward bases were marked, or earmarked, I would say to say that these are the specific bases I could take off from or land at to be, of course, I could land anywhere. But uh, to uh, to be able to recover out of that, I would be needing gas to get out of that place. But to launch, I would launch from a base which was designated for me, which had the gas. Mm-hmm. And uh, so... Uh, there would be a, a flurry of activity uh, in the squadron as far as the technicians are concerned to get the systems ready and everything correct. And uh, you decided on, you know, with the position of the sun, the, the optimized uh, and the weather conditions, uh, because there were strategic targets that were involved, you were not really um, constrained about uh, doing it at a particular time on a particular day i did have a leeway to to cater for uh, the the weather and the clouding and whatever there is because these are pure optical cameras it needed clear weather so uh, you would select the time date everything go through all the uh, met forecasts decide do your planning on the map and uh, then you had this computer. Oh, this computer was fantastic. You know, uh, you have these little MIPS that you put into these aircraft nowadays with all the waypoints mm-hmm. and everything. The planning the selected, little uh, USB stuff. Uh, we had a USB which is about that big. <laughs> as, as big as the laptop that I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sitting in front of right now. Uh, that was the size of MIP that I had and uh, I would have to punch in the binary on that. Wow. The zeros and the ones, the zeros and the ones. Okay, to, uh, For from the takeoff point to the top of climb to uh, waypoint 1, waypoint 2, waypoint 3, waypoint 4, whatever it is. Now the waypoints in this case, uh, for our type of aircraft, are not like the the Jaguar uh, low-level navigation waypoints,
2: mm-hmm.
1: where you are doing a certain tactical routing. Uh, these were waypoints were actually where the camera comes on, camera goes off. Mm. So the computer allowed you the autopilot and the computer uh, match up or the integration. Uh, actually allows you to fly this aeroplane hands off from takeoff to landing virtually That's impressive yeah so she would she would climb on her own she would level off on her own at an optimized height uh, and she would open up her cameras on a designated waypoint as you've selected on the computer and pre programmed she would open up the cameras take the photograph up to a certain point switch off the camera continue, switch on the camera again, switch off the camera as and when you've programmed it. Mm -hmm. So once you've you've done the map planning, you've worked out the coordinates, you get uh, get your computer uh, tablet, you punch in your coordinates, and you give it to the technician. And they fit it into the aircraft and, you know, push it in the land. All right, so it, it was massive. So, once that has gone in, you're all set, and now you're just waiting for time. Uh, time factor-wise, there were two things that were needed to be done uh, before you actually got to uh, taxi out and take off. One was putting on your pressure suit, the time that it takes, mm. and to be you know mentally prepared for what you're going to do. And uh, the second was uh, erecting the initial platform on the aircraft, which took a little time. In winters, it was uh, pretty rapid. Uh, Rapid, when I say rapid, it's about 25 to 30 minutes rapid. And in summers, it was about 45 minutes. So, So, I would give the technicians the time to put the systems on. And... uh, 20 minutes or half an hour before I was to walk to the aircraft, I would start putting on my suit and getting ready. Um, as I told you, you need to use the toilet before you um, get into that suit. So get get the suit ready, sit in an air-conditioned room because it's very hot outside with all that thing on. And uh, and then you, you've told the technician to put the systems on, the initial platform, uh, uh to start its erection time and when there's uh, 10 minutes to go for the for the uh, cycle to complete the erection cycle to complete they give you a call from um, uh, the technical office to say that you can now walk uh, so you walk down to the airplane and uh, if it's a little far you're taken by a vehicle Otherwise, you, uh, you walk down and uh, get into the aircraft. So by the time you strap in and the thing, the the initial platform is erected and ready for you. The systems are go, and now all you have to do is start the two engines one by one and taxi out and take off. So. Uh, Landing back, again, uh, you get back. Once you land back, the first thing that the technicians do is lower the camera. As I told you, it's like a sofa set, a small sofa set. So there's a, there's a system of, uh, of winches, and they're all manual. And you winch down the entire block, the camera block, and um, take out the rolls of film. The rolls of film were about I would say uh, 12 to 14 inches and uh, about uh, eight inches uh, to 10 inches in diameter and uh, so you take out these four uh, five rolls of camera or film from the camera and uh, and you send them to the processing room so we had these uh, Various sections like every squadron has for its various systems. There was another guy who, who did the ELINT
2: mm.
1: work. Uh, and I don't know whether I told you, it had an ELINT system on board, mm-hmm. the electronic intelligence, and uh, it, it was a hardwired, pre programmed thing. I couldn't uh, do anything in the cockpit. So you had to pre-program the threat library, and uh, feed it in and leave it there, and when you flew the mission, she would pick up all the emissions. Uh, That had a fantastic range. It had a range of uh, almost a thousand kilometers. Wow. Yeah. So it could pick up uh, um, frequency emissions uh, at at very vast ranges, depending on the strength of the frequency, of course. Mm. And so the camera guys took the, the film rolls, the Elin guys took the ELINT data output from there and you went to the respective sections to uh, milk out or or, uh, or develop the films <clears throat> and get the information. Uh, once the film, uh, it's all in the dark room and once the film because analog as I told you and as and when the film was developed uh, The photo interpreter would always be there. We had a special photo interpreter posted to the unit and a specialized guy, and he would be there supervising and uh, the pilot would be called in and the photo interpreter together. They would see the wet film as it's rolled out on a a screen on a table, uh, illuminated table, which would give you the first wet print picture of the target areas that uh, you went over. Uh, he would also check uh, the sort of uh, overlaps or anything, any uh, uh, mistakes made in or errors that have accrued because of whether it was flying, whether it was conditions, uh, or whether it was mechanical systems problems, whatever it is, to see that the frames, each frame of the film is following accurately along the path mm-hmm. so you do have you do have um, uh, markings on the film which are telling you the lat long uh, the exact um, uh, lat long of the of the frame uh, so you can see the progression is is going accurately and correctly mm-hmm. and based on the input that the pilot gives the photo interpreter and he's also been there in the planning anyhow so we mark out that here's the target here's the target here's the target and thereafter focus on those portions of the film that are relevant for future use by the strike guys strike pilots so you take out the relevant portions of the film and now you blow it up, and I could blow blow up. A, uh, say I am sitting on a laptop, which is uh, say about it's a 14 inch laptop. Instantly, and I'm sitting on, and um, the photo frame was about this size. Hmm. One frame of the film
2: oh.
1: was about the size of this 14 inch laptop, and. Uh, I could blow up that uh, picture uh, without uh, graining, without c- grains, and for for yes. a clear picture, absolutely, to about uh, almost five feet. Uh, wow! Yeah, five feet by four feet or so. Mm-hmm. You know about yeah that edge, huge. So I mean, I I could I could blow it up that uh, around say, around four feet onwards, it would start to grain, but still uh, fairly clear, but otherwise they were very sharp, the pictures were very sharp, black and white, and uh, very sharp, and great clarity. Uh, I, I, um, I as, as an example, I would say um, from 70,000 uh, feet Flying at those speeds, uh, I could pick up uh, a guy on top of an aeroplane uh, technician. If I ran over a, a, an airfield, wow, uh,
0: right? I, I wow. could,
1: yeah, I, I couldn't make out his hands and stuff like that. But, but you know I got there's a man on top of the aeroplane, you know, fixing something. So, uh, well, that's that's the sort of clarity that you got. So, this uh, entire process of planning, getting ready, flying the mission, one-hour mission, uh, decoding, and everything, is, was very long. It was 8 to 10 hours.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And in, in strategic reconnaissance, uh, you're not critical on time. Of course. Really. So uh, you had the time to do everything correctly and uh, clearly and you produced the results to the agency that required it.
0: Absolutely, Absolutely. I mean, what a mission. Yes, yeah, uh, like I've always been fascinated with uh, reconnaissance missions. Even in this country, we had the tornado, Jaguar. Uh, it's a fascinating mission, but uh, yeah, assume it. I wanna, I, there's one, famous incident you had uh, uh, but maybe you can share maybe that one uh, with us with another memorable story. I think we're going to talk about the eclipse
1: here. I'll tell you the the starting point and uh, what really happened. Um, I got a call from air headquarters. I was commanding the unit at that time and uh, I got a call from air headquarters to uh, come there to the headquarters in Delhi. Actually, that's how we operated. You know, I would get a call from Delhi to say that you come there, and then they would tell you there's a mission.
2: Okay. Uh, You
1: you never got these on telephones and stuff like that. (laughs) It's very James Bond. (laughs) You would understand why. Yeah. So uh, I went there, and uh, so they told me that uh, there's this... uh, team of scientists that want to meet you and talk with you, as certainly. So there was a presentation that was organized and in the presentation there were these scientists from uh, the solar observatories and there were a group of them from different places and uh, I was one of the couple of guys who was there and they said that look, this is what we want to do. They said we want to film the solar eclipse from the stratosphere. Now, the solar eclipse uh, was, uh, it happened on the 24th or 28th of October, 1995. So, uh, there are a lot of telescopes that, you know, people, all the scientists, they they want to get data out of the solar eclipse. There's guys with telescopes all over the place. Mm -hmm. There are people in aeroplanes and, you know, small aeroplanes and even transport aeroplanes, Doing photography of uh, the eclipse, so they said it's not been photographed from the stri- uh, stratosphere because, uh, notwithstanding uh, where you are, whether you're flying uh, in a in a transport aircraft or whether you're on the ground or with a powerful um, telescope, there's always the medium which uh, provides the resistance or the clarity uh, resistance to clarity. So, you have dust particles and water droplets and stuff like that uh, in the atmosphere. And uh, so, they said, we want you to get above that and from the stratosphere where we always flew and the sky was no more blue anyhow. uh, They said that that from there, we should get clearer pictures than anybody has ever got with anything else, with the regular telescopes. So it started by saying that uh, we want you to uh, chase the shadow and take a photograph of the shadow, uh, you know, with your belly cameras. So when I asked them what is the speed of the shadow, it turns out that the shadow travels at almost two two and a half times the speed of the aeroplane at two and a half miles. It travels at is almost hypersonic. uh, At certain points, so I said I won't be chasing the shadow. I will feed into the shadow, and we'll give you the swath. So, the cameras with a swath of uh, with a uh, lateral coverage of 95 kilometers, uh, we actually film the shadow, which comes like an um, like an ellipse. It's traveling over the ground, and uh, uh, it's uh, it's about 45. 45 to 50 kilometers was the width of the diameter of that uh, elliptical path of the shadow so we got that shadow that i mean that was that was one of the one of the uh, sort of requirements the other one was to film the corona around the sun at the time of the eclipse the corona is the cloud around the sun at the time of the eclipse, and uh, the corona, I, I I'm given to understand gives a lot of scientific data to these um, people um, for uh, for whatever they, they mm-hmm. want to do. There's, uh, so, it, so the, the idea was to film the corona as the sun is going into the full eclipse, and thereafter. As the eclipse gets over, uh, you would have seen pictures of the diamond ring, you know, of a solar eclipse—just yeah. a little dot and the little ring around the sun. Uh, so, you know, from that point on, the corona, whatever happens around the sun, there a lot of things that uh, that they derive out of uh, data from that that information. So that was the idea. So I said fine. Uh, so there's this uh, very senior scientist who came and uh, came to where we were operating from. And uh, so he said, uh, "Well, this is what it is, and this is what we do." We started our planning. So I told him, "I said, uh, Professor, where's uh, uh, where's where's the camera?" So. And before that, I told them, I said, um, I hope you understand that we have only belly cameras. I can't do any photography in front. This one will give you a camera to, you know, do the photography mm-hmm. in front. That's fine. So I asked the professor, I said, Professor, where's uh, the camera? He said, Yeah, it's coming, it's coming. So I was wondering why uh, it was so. Notwithstanding, after four or five days, almost a week's time, the camera came. Until then, you know, he would sit with us and we would chat and talk. And uh, as I told you, uh, we couldn't show the airplane to people, Mm -hmm. so to anybody for that matter. And um, so he hadn't seen the airplane. And this camera came. And it was a box, uh, which was about, you know, uh, bigger than this laptop, uh, one and a half times the size of this laptop. And about that high, and so he comes with this huge thing and he says, Here it is. I said, What's this? He says, It's a camera. I said, You got to be kidding. <laughs> I said, Have you ever seen a fighter cockpit? He said, No. He said, No. So then I took him to the airplane and he climbed up the ladder, he looked inside and he knew exactly what I was getting at, that a monster like this couldn't fit in. Uh, It wasn't as big as that, but it was finally uh, a shade smaller than this 14-inch laptop, but I would say about 12 inches, definitely, Mm -hmm. and about uh, eight inches by, by six inches this way, and the length was about 12 inches. It was massive. It was a Hasselblad. It was a Hasselblad. For whatever reasons, uh, they didn't want a a a a video film, a moving film. They wanted stills. Mm, Okay. So it was it was a camera that operated at twenty five frames per second or something like that. And uh, so now the question was, he says, "I'm sorry, I I didn't know, but." A cockpit was like this how do you fit this thing? So I, I decided to you know take my own decision that at that moment of time because to ask people to uh, to sort of uh, do anything with the airplane do some modifications and all it's, it's a big exercise oh, technical wow. exercise uh, to get uh, clearances and all that so I, I took some decisions of my own. We uh, all aircraft have this combing above the instrument panel to shield the, uh, from the sunlight. Uh, we removed that combing, and then firstly, I said, Look, look I, I cannot have this monster in front of me and fly because I'll have no forward vision. So, I need to fly the two seater. Right. So we, so, we decided to put the camera on the two seater and a chase aircraft, which was a fighter with the belly cameras. Uh, for the shadow. So there were two different missions that were flown, one behind the other. And we went around fitting this camera onto the uh, top of the instruments. Uh, to align the camera to get the correct uh, uh, positions, uh, we had to harmonize, you know, like we harmonize our guns and rockets. Uh, rocket pods on on an aircraft, you put it up on jacks, you put the aircraft into um, the flying attitude, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: or the actual angle of attack at a speed of, say, on a ground attack mission, at 900 kilometers per hour, um, the actual angle of attack of the airplane and and the jacks are put, the aircraft is rigged, at that in that position and now the harmonization is done with the board in front with you know various uh, sights marked and all that and now you harmonize the weapons the gun sight and everything else to that Uh, I did exactly the same thing with this camera
2: Mm.
1: It was not a fighter airplane, so I had to fabricate everything on my own we did it in our workshop and uh, We put the aircraft up on Jags We uh, he got us all these old uh, these uh, uh, these huge NASA charts from which we figured out that on that particular day, with those temperature conditions and those atmospheric conditions, uh, what would be the density altitudes and and the various atmospheric uh, uh, conditions I would say to and what uh, angle of attack would the aircraft be flying at. Mm-hmm. at that with those speeds and at those heights so based on all that we fitted the camera got the alignments hopefully it was right and uh, and then we were ready for the mission mm-hmm. uh we flew it around noon sometime around noon i think the time uh, was uh, around 11:50 1150, 11:55 or so and uh, what I did was, as the eclipse came, we fed into the path of the eclipse and waited for it to come and cover us. And I would started the filming while the sun was still fully visible. Now, because uh, uh, I had to follow the sun accurately, I you can't be looking at it. Uh, I had. I had uh, the camera installed in the front cockpit of the two-seater, mm-hmm. and I was flying from the from the rear seat, that's the stepped-up one. And I I was uh, telling this guy when to click the camera every for those twenty-five frames per second, and we were doing short bursts of say five seconds each or whatever, and. Uh, we got these filters on our on our visors because you can't look at the sun at that time during the eclipse. It's not safe. Uh, s- some filters came from Argentina, visor filters, mm. uh, which we pasted on. They were they were stick-on stuff. Oh
2: wow!
1: Yeah, uh, from Argentina or someplace, and uh, then we uh, I fabricated a small gun sight with a, with, a, with some aluminium. And uh, stuck, you know, the old graph paper which had oh. the centimeter markings. Yeah, yeah. So I put the graph paper and I made a pinhole in the center at the, at the, at the, the cross section, and the, the center of the axis, I would say. Yeah. And uh, so I was peering through that and doing the flying so that my height and speeds are correct because the angle of attack had to be correct uh, at that altitude and those speeds. For the camera to be correctly aligned with with the elevation of the sun at that moment of time. So all these were mathematically derived by the scientists and by us in coordination to figure out an exact you know um, sort of a accuracy, I would say, to get the camera aligned totally with the sun right through the flight of that uh, mission. Uh, From the ground, the total eclipse when it took place, from the ground, the uh, eclipse was visible to the person on the ground for 42 seconds. Uh, Flying at 2.5 mark uh, in the stratosphere at 80,000 feet, We flew at 80,000 feet. Uh, I got to see the eclipse for 2 minutes and 20 seconds. Wow. A little more. Wow. Yeah. So, we were in total eclipse, pitch black, dark night conditions, um, stars in the sky, and uh, just flying, maintaining direction, maintaining speed and height, correct, and the cameras clicking away. And when the the eclipse got over and the diamond ring came, so we got the the essential diamond ring that, you know, everybody gets, even Mm -hmm. from the ground telescope, you get the diamond ring. But the better picture that we thought and which the professor, you know, uh, blew it up and he presented uh, the Air Force with this particular picture Mm -hmm. was maybe a second or two later after the diamond ring comes up. Uh, the sun, sun rays go through the various uh, ridges and the, of the, of the mountain ranges on the, on, the, on the moon. So when it pierces that, there's a there's, there's, it's like a starburst, you know. Mm. It's a huge starburst in front of you, and uh, I, I don't know whether I sent you the picture
0: yes uh, well I, I found it online but it's amazing you didn't send me a but like i found it it's
1: incredible so that's the starburst and we we thought that that is a more unusual picture under the circumstances because the diamond ring is a very common thing that one has seen over the years and this starburst nobody has pictured because it, it's it's an instant of time yeah
2: exactly. it's an
1: instant of time uh, and the clarity of that picture was phenomenal because of well, where we were. So uh, the mission was successful. Uh, the uh, scientists were very happy with the results. Essentially, the sortie was flown for the scientists, and uh, well, we did it.
0: Absolutely. I mean, yeah, what a story. I mean. A lot of our viewers have been contacting me before we even like uh got on this chat and said like ask him about this and ask him about uh you know the eclipse and what a story uh i mean what a privilege to be a part of something like that and i'm guessing do you have a picture somewhere maybe in your
1: house uh, of that photo yes um i have a small one yeah um i'll send it to you
0: Perfect. Right, so we're gonna wrap up the, the, I mean, this has been amazing on the MiG-25 because uh, I want to get on to some more personal questions, but uh, how many uh, hours did you get on
1: the MiG-25R? Uh, I think around 725 hours. Wow, That's incredible. Uh, I, I flew it over six years. Six years. Uh, four years was my first um, tenure and then two years later, 10 years later, as the commanding officer. The MiG-29, like I told you, the MiG-21 was a fighter pilot's aeroplane. The MiG-29 is is that and more.
2: Mm.
1: And more because uh, it gives you like the MiG-21, a level of confidence when you're sitting in that cockpit that I can outfight anything in the sky.
2: Mm.
1: Uh, the MiG-29, as your MiG-29 guys would have told you, have has certain limitations. Uh, the engines burned the gas with this black trail. You could see a MiG-29 from 20, 30 miles away oh, if he engaged the yeah, if you engage the afterburner, hmm. if I'm on a cruise in, in dry power, you will not see me. But uh, if I engage the burners, the moment I engage the burners, there's a black smoke trail, uh, which you can you can pick up from 20, 30 miles away. Hmm. So, it was a giveaway. It was a giveaway as far as the aircraft is concerned. So, as a rule, we, we would engage it only when when required. Uh, in in air-to-air combat because of the visual uh, thing, but of course the radar was a different ball game altogether. It was my first experience with the beyond-visual-range missile mm-hmm. system on board, and with the um, infrared uh, infrared uh, sensor yeah. uh, uh, tracking system. So, uh, since the aircraft is still flying, I will not talk about it and how we employed it. But needless to say that uh, uh, the systems on board were good for its time. Uh, The version of the MiG-29 that I flew uh, was the initial version. What we have today in the Indian Air Force is the upgraded version, which is as good as a Su-30. Uh, capability uh, upgraded to that capability, and uh, and and uh, with wonderful systems on board, glass cockpits and stuff like that. We didn't. I never flew a glass cockpit. Uh, fantastic handling capability without fly by wire. Mm. It was. It. I
2: mean.
1: When you say you're in the nine G club, well, you're in the nine G club all the time, virtually. In that,
2: you know, it's so easy.
1: It was so. It was so responsive. Uh, so it was because of sheer maneuverability. If you're doing a close-in combat with somebody, a visual combat, uh, so within visual range bubble, combats. I don't think anybody anything would touch it other than probably the new fifth-generation airplanes uh, yeah. There was nothing that could touch it. I, I had the confidence that it could go through anything, you know I I got to fly three chiefs of air staff oh. of, of other air forces uh, I flew uh, The Royal Air Force chief I flew the Singapore Air Force chief and I flew the Luftwaffe Air Force chief and uh, if I do, I have the time to tell you about absolutely. Uh, yeah, go for it, see, man. Uh, Air Chief Marshal Sir Peter Harding of the Royal Air Force. So I was called into uh, another base where he was visiting, the Mirage base, actually, and I was told that uh, you're required here to bring your two-seater. Uh, we'd like to fly the Royal Air Force Chief. He he's uh, expressed a desire to fly the MiG 29 because the Mirage is he flown. So I flew in there with my two-seater, and uh, so I was all set. I met the uh, chief, and um, tall, strapping uh, gentleman, uh, wonderful person, individual, six feet four inches tall, <laughs> and I'm five, and I'm five feet six inches, so you could you can imagine. So he sat down for the briefing, and he, uh, I started to brief him. So he was to fly with me from the rear seat. And uh, I started to brief him. And I told him what happens on takeoff. And I told him we'll do a dry takeoff because I could do an afterburner takeoff with you, not a problem. But you would get left behind so badly, you know, uh, because the aircraft is so fast and so rapid, the acceleration is so rapid, that you wouldn't really uh, enjoy it to that extent. So I said, we'll do a dry takeoff. And uh, I was told very categorically by the, my boss there on the base, as well as the Royal Air Force uh, um, uh, ADC and the staff officer who was with him, to say that uh, the chief has a spondylosis issue and he is not to be put through aerobatics. I said, Are you sure? I, I mean, that's what the military is all about, you know, the maneuver. They said no, he has an issue with his uh, spondylosis issue, so you can't put him through all this. He's limited to 3G. Oh. So I said, okay. So I briefed him, and uh, as I started the briefing to say that, you know, this is what we'll do, this is it, he put his hand up and he stopped me. He says, uh, son, uh, may I say something? I said, certainly, sir. He says, you know, son, this is going to be the 123rd aeroplane I'm going to fly in my life. Wow! I have done the takeoff and the landing on every aeroplane that I fly. May I do the takeoff and the landing?" <laughs> I said, certainly. So I, I just told him what is to be done. And uh, he was uh, an old, what I have uh, heard and uh, what I had heard and understood, was that he'd been an instructor for a very long period of time himself. Mm-hmm. So on the takeoff roll, he was giving me, you know, what we call patter as an instructor, you know, you talk as a, whatever yeah. the aircraft is doing, as yeah, a Muslim, yeah. and that's an ability and, and, a, and a quality and a training that needs to go through. He was giving me patter as good as anybody else on his first ever trip on a MiG-29. I was amazed at his professional capability at that age and um, hats off, honestly, I was so impressed. That's Anyhow, hilarious. we went up and I asked him, I said, sir, would you like to, you know, he moved the aeroplane around here and there. Then I asked him, I said, would you like to do a stall and recovery? Hmm. He said, you do stall and recovery on a fighter aeroplane? I said, yes, sir. So he said, okay. So we did the stall and recovery and I he followed me on the controls and we did the stall and recovery and we recovered. A MiG-29 loses 50 feet
2: mm.
1: in a stall This recovery. It's, it's ba- you can barely feel it. Yeah. She's so forgiving. She's so forgiving. So, he said, is that it? I said, yes. He said, I'd like to do one myself. I said, go ahead. <laughs> so, he did that. Very happy. Then, we flew around, I showed him the area. Then I asked him, sir, sir would you like to uh, do some aerobatics? He said, you know, I have a limitation. I have a medical limitation that I can't exceed 3G. So I'm sorry, I can't do aerobatics. I asked him, I said, sir, would you like to do a loop at 2.5G, your limitation at 3G? Would you like to do a loop at 2.5G? He said, it can't be done. Hmm. Well, if you you wish, if you wish we could do it. Now, he knew this was outside the briefing. And uh, this was with no permissions from anybody. But uh, the chief was willing to take the risk. And he said, show me. Mm -hmm. So we got down to 3,000 feet, a little lower. And I... Accelerated and did the loop at two and a half g.
2: Hmm.
1: He was amazed at the handling ability or the capability of the aeroplane. He says, "I and I kept talking to him right through to ask him whether he was uncomfortable at any time with the two and a half g." Hmm. And I showed him here the g meter. Keep watching it. It's not going to exceed two and a half. And. Uh, he went through the loop. I kept asking him, Are you, sir? Are you uncomfortable? He said, yeah, I'm very comfortable. When we finished, he said, This was amazing. He said, Can I try it? I said, Certainly. <laughs> so uh, I talked him through it and he did the uh, did a loop on his own at two and a half G. He was so happy. When we got back, he, when he came out of the aeroplane, he was shouting at his ADCs. He had uh, two or three officers, R.A.F. officers them. So, I've done a loop, I've done a loop today. <laughs> and uh, they had this horrified look and they were looking at me as to what I had, I had, you know, sort of gone against the instructions. But then the chief was so happy that he said, no, I, it, I, I, I did a loop today, I'm, I'm so happy that I've done yes, aerobatics. Yes. So that was a great experience. Absolutely. And so also with the Singapore, the Singapore H was uh, was very, very, very fit, very fit.
0: Mm -hmm. I mean,
1: they they have F sixteen, so he wanted to fly the MiG twenty nine, and he enjoyed himself. He stayed around between seven and nine G most of the time.
0: Oh God. So, we've got a question here from Joe Kunzler, one of our patrons. Uh, what's the fastest you have been in the MiG-25 Foxbat?
1: Oh, the fastest? Yes. Oh, we were, we were limited to 2.83 mark. <laughs> wow. Uh, it, was, it was a limitation. Uh, the aircraft um, uh, hold, uh, held a speed record of 3.2 mark. Uh, We have exceeded 2.83. Let's put it that way. That uh, when you uh, uh, we have had no problems. You will find write-ups to say that the engine melts away above.
0: Yes, heard that before.
1: Above three marks, so that's why the limitation is 2.83. We have not had an engine meltdown. And let me tell you that we have exceeded 2.83. (laughs)
0: <laughs> we'll leave it there maybe and, 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 and,
1: and we we've, al- we've also hit a hundred thousand feet oh. wow Altitude, yes
0: crikey oh, bloody hell i mean that's uh, that is moving and that's high <laughs> so hopefully that what uh, answers your question there joe but uh, i've got a couple of personal questions to wrap up this interview sumit uh do you have any hobbies uh
1: yes i um My hobbies are uh, reading, uh, music, and uh, I play golf. Um, And these are the three things, uh, essentially. Reading, uh, well, uh, different types over the years. P.G. Woodhouse has remained a favorite all along. I can always turn to P.G. Woodhouse (laughs) just to take my mind off and relax. Just love his writings. Presently, I'm... uh, going through uh, i'm revisiting i would say james jones and and his books of from here to eternity and mm. a thin red line you know the world war two books music uh, country and western the classic country and western nice yeah and uh, and my golf i guess
0: Brilliant, and this could be uh, well. I mean, you've flown so much, Suma, but favorite aircraft you've flown?
1: Tough question. It is uh, unfair question, also. I would say.
0: Because, uh, <laughs> I know.
1: When you fly, when you fly an aeroplane, you love it. Uh, the least that I flew were the MiG twenty three and the MiG twenty seven. Okay. So. Uh, I never really got so fond of it, I would say, compared to the other three. The MiG 21, I had uh, 1,300 hours, mm-hmm. 1,300 hours on the MiG 21, on all the variants. So you were born with it, you started life. My last sortie ever, uh, I mean, uh, last sortie in the Air Force before I retired, was on the MiG 21. As an air marshal before I attended, before I retired, I went to fly the MiG-21. So I started life on the MiG-21, I finished life with the MiG twenty-one. So it's like you're almost uh, like a baby. Yes. So you know, you love it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the MiG twenty five, for what it was, it's sheer brute strength and capability. Uh, The the sheer power that you felt when you sat inside the sound of those engines was something so different Mm. Uh, When you stood when you stood outside and listened to a takeoff near the runway uh, the whole ground shook So jealous the whole ground shook all 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 around near the near the runway area You know the ATC building and everything else a very deep growl very deep sound and The MiG-29 for sure handling capability. Mm Mm-hmm outstanding okay so i might pin you
0: down to one so if you could go up tomorrow uh, for one last flight on the aircraft you've flown which one would you pick it's on the runway ready to go which one would you pick sumit
1: bad question
0: <laughs> i don't think i'm going to answer a uh, few i'd,
1: I'd like I'd, I'd like to i'd like to step into all
0: i know yeah i've I, I
1: i wouldn't um, I, I wouldn't you know, put into that category of favourites because I love them all.
0: Yes, all different and they've all got the the quirks and uh, all the rest of it. But this might be an interesting one for you. I'll be interested to hear your opinion on this. One you would like to fly that you haven't, either past or present.
1: I would have loved to fly the Spitfire.
0: Spit, right.
1: Right. And, uh from the past, and uh, going ahead, incidentally, I've flown the Su-30, I've flown the Mirage 2000 also. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Yeah, uh, on the Mirage, I've flown about five sorties. On the Jaguar, about 10, 15 sorties on Jaguar. Uh, On the Su-30, I've flown two sorties, um, and I've flown the with the pilot who who uh, used to do the demonstration flights, you know, for the air shows and stuff yeah. like that. So I've gone through the maneuvers, the full demonstration profile, the loop tumble roll, uh, roll you know, that um, uh, the yaw, the loop tumble yaw mm-hmm. that the Su-30 does is extraordinary, extraordinary. I, I mean, I, I couldn't I couldn't think of it on a MiG-29, but. Uh, you're flying cross controls, and uh, you have the uh, you have the uh, uh, the canards, you know, yeah. operating all the time, and uh, your engines uh, thrust vectoring and all that. It's 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 phenomenal that stuff.
0: Yeah, it's incredible. So,
1: so into the future, yeah, thrust vectoring aircraft. I think the the fifth generation is going to be here. A pilot's
0: dream. Well, we'll link them in there uh, in the bottom there because we do have a lot of uh, Indian viewers and Indian fans of our channel, uh, uh, a lot actually. And this is going to be one of their favourite interviews, I'm sure, because you've had such an amazing career. But uh, Suma, I just want to say thank you very much for coming on the channel. It's been an absolute pleasure. I could talk to you for hours, but thank you very much to give up a bit your time and share your story.
1: My privilege and my pleasure too, Mike. Thank you very much.